Hi, it's Holly, and you've arrived at the second location. This is a little side episode to the series I am doing on the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. I'm going to be talking about the Reed method of interrogation. This technique, or a version of it, seems like it was used to question the suspects in the yogurt shop investigation, and it helped elicit two false confessions. I don't want to cloud up the episodes about the murders of the girls with this information about the Reed technique and its application and its role in false confessions, but I just found it incredibly interesting, and I thought that you guys might be interested too. So here we go. While the Reed method has resulted in numerous false confessions, I believe it began with really good intentions. The Reed method was supposed to replace basically torture as the go-to method to get a confession. Once the police couldn't beat a confession out of somebody, that's when the Reed method comes in. And it's more psychological pressure as opposed to physical. So I think we can all agree that as disastrous as the Reed method is in practice, it is much better than how interrogations used to go down. I'll honestly say this. I believe the Reed method is improperly used. But I think it gets even worse because individuals using the Reed method, different police officers, they put their own spin on it. They do their own way of using it. And I think that just makes things worse. Because when you look at the rules of Reed, one of the ones is you have to be certain that the person is guilty before you use this technique for questioning. And that's not the case. This is the main form of questioning that's used when anybody's interrogated. Because it's almost the only one that police officers have been trained in. And not even if they've done formal Reed training, but in their training process, the Reed technique is so enmeshed in the police structure that it's, even if you don't know you're teaching people the Reed method, that's the method you're using and that's what you're teaching them. Even though the Reed method was supposed to make things better, it still results in an abnormal amount of false confessions, which is disturbing and people should not be okay with that. But before the Reed method was ever out there, it was common practice for police officers to use physical force to get people to confess. And I will honestly say, it shocks my system that it wasn't until 1936 that the Supreme Court held that confessions from defendants that were obtained by force, this case where the Supreme Court was ruling, the defendants were whipped with belts and were told that the whipping would only stop once they confessed and outlined the details of the crime. In 1936, in this case, the Supreme Court ruled that these forced confessions couldn't be admitted at trial. So that means any time before 1936, even if a defendant was able to show they beat me, beat me within an inch of my life to get me to confess, there was no ruling from the Supreme Court and no consensus within the United States that that would be a confession that should be not admitted at trial. To me... This is Salem witch trial bullshit. 1936, I know, everybody, it's a long time ago, but that's less than a 100 years ago. And it's just so sad that we don't have to reach really that far back into time to find things that are you know, purely deranged bullshit. Like, how far off is beating somebody almost to death? How far off is that if she floats, she's a witch. If she sinks, oh, shit, we just drowned a good woman. The distance is not great. I feel we've traveled a lot more between 1936 and now than we had between the witch trials in 1936, to be honest with you. But anyway, in 1936, the Supreme Court says that you can't beat someone until they confess. Now, sure, the police still did it for years. And really, it's not until interrogations were recorded that police violence against suspects really was reduced to the point where it is a rarity and not the standard. And I'm talking 
video recorded because the police used to do a technique where they'd audio record select portions of interrogations. That didn't help. To be honest with you, it really didn't. You know, they'd interrogate somebody for 12 hours, but we got six minutes on audio recording. But once video recording of interrogations became the norm, things have changed. But with the Supreme Court back in the day finally ruling in 1936 that the police can't beat a confession of a suspect, the police basically have two paths to choose from. Either they still use physical violence, but in a way that won't leave marks, or instead of coercion through manipulation of the body, you know, beating the shit out of a person, they can force the confession through manipulation of the suspect's mind. Enter the Reed Method. The Reed Method really caught on in America, and it is the most widely taught interrogation method in this country. But I will say in defense of the Reed Technique, its creator said that it should only be used when the police are positive that the suspect is guilty, because it is designed to elicit a confession. It's not designed to find out the truth. It's designed to elicit a confession. But the police think every fucking suspect is guilty. So how the hell does that really help? The police use this on everybody. But the read technique in its own design by its originators said this is not to be used all the time. This is a last resort when we know this person is guilty. But now it's like every interrogation is the read technique. So what started out as a method that should only be used when guilt was certain soon became the only way we question people in this country. And for many police officers, it's the only interrogation technique that they know. So even though the intention was for this form of questioning to only be used in certain cases, it quickly became the method of interrogation in all cases. And this technique is so damn dangerous that the very first time the read method was used, it resulted in a false confession and a subsequent wrongful conviction for murder. The convicted man was later determined to be innocent when a serial killer confessed to the murder 33 years later. But anyway, my point is right there from the beginning, this read technique, right there from the get-go, this shit didn't work right. But because even in this first case, it took decades to be realized that this technique had elicited a false confession that the wrong man was in prison. So we got this first confession. Look how quickly that came. That was so easy. And the read method just takes off because it was so useful in getting suspects to confess. So I guess who cares if it doesn't work? It gets confessions. You know what? I hate that I just told all of you that the first time John Reed used his new method of interrogation, it resulted in a false confession and a wrongful conviction. And then I just tried to gloss over the details. Skimming details? Well, that just isn't me. And if I don't tell you guys about this case, who the hell am I going to talk about it with? So here we go. It's Nebraska in 1955, and John Reed has this new approach to questioning suspects that he wants to test out. And he has his first big opportunity to test out his new method. The suspect? It's Daryl Parker. He's a 24-year-old forester who had just graduated from Iowa State and moved to Nebraska. Daryl was happily married to 22-year-old Nancy Parker. Nancy was a dietitian who hosted a cooking show on a local TV station. The young couple were on a path to success, with their new careers really taking off. They've been married for just under a year at this point, but their relationship? It's going well. That is, until December 14th, 1955, after Daryl has breakfast with his wife, he leaves for work. When Daryl goes home for lunch, he finds that his wife, Nancy, well, she's dead in their bedroom. Nancy had been beaten, her feet and hands were bound, 
and she had been raped and then strangled to death. A cord was still around her neck. A heartbroken and grieving Daryl took his wife's body to our hometown for burial in Iowa. While he was mourning with family six days after his wife's murder, he got a call in Iowa telling him that the police wanted to talk to him. He wasn't told that he was a suspect. He returned to Nebraska the next day. When Daryl arrived, he was immediately hooked up to a polygraph machine by John Reed. And every time Daryl answered a question, Reed told him that the machine could tell that he was lying. Polygraphs are more believed back then and a little bit newer. And the machine is set up. So Daryl, while he's being questioned, he can't see what the needle's doing. So he just has to take John Reed's word that the needle's going crazy and showing that he's lying, even though he can't see that for himself. Now, during a 9 to 12 hour interrogation, different places say 9 hours, some say 12, all I know is it was long. Daryl eventually confessed to raping and killing his own wife. While Daryl initially claimed that he was innocent, John Reed wore him down with accusations that Nancy had been cheating on Daryl, all of which were untrue. John Reed claimed that Nancy wouldn't have sex with Daryl and that she openly flirted with other men. John Reed said that while enraged, Daryl, quote, took what was rightfully his. I'm trying not to gag over here. That was hard to say. But at some point while being questioned, Daryl began to believe that his wife had been unfaithful to him. And even though he had never thought that before, talking to John Reed, the police claimed that Daryl knew stuff about the crime scene. And this came out during the interrogation. And these were things that only the killer would know. The police examples of these items that only the killer would know were that Nancy had been hit on her left eye and that a lamp had been knocked off a nightstand. But Daryl found Nancy's body. He saw her face. He could have seen that there were wounds to her left eye. And he was at the crime scene. He would have seen the lamp was knocked over. This isn't evidence that Daryl was the killer. This is evidence that he came home for lunch and walked into a crime scene where his wife had been brutally raped and murdered. Now, at the conclusion of the questioning, Reed says that Daryl has confessed. And Daryl immediately retracted his confession by the next day. But it was too late. You can't unring a bell, right? Daryl was convicted of his wife's murder in 1956. And Daryl was sentenced to life in prison. And Daryl actually had a pretty nice, pretty pleasant prison stay, which is good because he's innocent. The warden was aware of Daryl's background in forestry and gave him a job as a prison groundskeeper. He even got to have his own little private room in the prison's greenhouse where he lived by himself. In prison, it doesn't get much better than that. But Daryl, he keeps appealing his sentence and he's bounced all around through the courts, both state and federal. And after a successful federal ruling that his confession had been coerced, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed and sent the case back to the trial court for the lower court to determine if the confession was coerced. By this point, it's 1970. And Daryl had been released when he had won an earlier appeal, but he went back to prison and waived his right to the hearing on the voluntariness of the confession, and he was, you know, back in prison. But behind the scene, it appears that the state was less certain of Daryl's guilt than they had pretended in court. Because just days after his conviction was reinstated, the Nebraska Board of Pardons commuted his sentence and Daryl was released on parole. He had only been back in prison for one symbolic day. Now, Daryl's out, but he's a convicted murderer. He's tarnished for life. But at least he only spent 13, 14 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. I mean, he's getting out a lot sooner than a lot of wrongfully convicted people do. So Daryl, he moves to Illinois, he remarries, and he has a family. He went on to live a long, law-abiding life. This convicted wife murderer lived to 90 
and never had any further brushes with the law. Not sure Daryl was free, and he had made a lovely life for himself, and although he knew he hadn't murdered Nancy, his conviction in his first wife's death hurt him. His family had always supported him, and now he had a new family, but still, this was something that was always in the back of his mind. Would his new community find out about his past? How would they treat him? He was just forever bothered that this might come out from the dark, and people might look at him a different way. While Daryl's rebuilding his life in Illinois, back in Kansas, Death Row got a new resident when Wesley Peary was convicted of murdering a woman in 1975. And as Daryl rebuilt, Wesley Perry confessed to Nancy Parker's murder, along with the murder of 12 other women. But here is the glitch. Perry had confessed to his own attorneys. The attorneys were bound by attorney-client privilege, which Perry was not willing to waive, to keep their client's confession to these additional murders secret. But luckily, Perry told his attorneys that after his death, his additional confessions could be made public. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't some type of altruistic move by a potential serial killer. Perry had been recording his memoirs while he was on death row and taking interviews with his attorney describing all of these murders that he claims that he had committed. Because, see, this guy, he wanted his life story to be published after his death, and then the funds from the book sale would go to his family. When Perry died in 1988, his confession was publicly released, and it contained details about Nancy and Daryl's home that only somebody that had been in the home would know. And now Perry had never been in the Parker's home, but he knew the layout of the house. And more importantly, Perry knew the one holdback item that the police had withheld from the press, which was the fact that Nancy's watch was missing. Perry admitted that he had stolen the watch and fenced it after her murder. In his confession, Perry said that he waited outside of the Parker's home until Daryl left for work, and then Perry, armed with a shotgun, forced his way into the home. I'll say this, too, because it's interesting to note here, is Perry was a co-worker of Daryl Parker's. Okay, so Daryl's free, and now we've got this guy that was in prison for murdering a woman, you know, that confessed to the crime that Daryl was convicted of, you know, the murder of Nancy Parker, his wife. So Daryl was able to apply for a pardon, and it was granted in 1991, 36 years after Nancy Parker had been murdered. And the cloud of guilt over Daryl was finally lifted. And after some changes in state law, in 2011, this is 20 years after he's been pardoned, Daryl Parker filed for state compensation for wrongful conviction. And in 2012, Daryl was awarded half a million dollars, along with a declaration of innocence from the state and an actual apology from Nebraska's Attorney General. And I will say this, Nebraska's Attorney General, that guy seemed like a nice guy because he just said this was the right thing to do. And I don't, I don't think I hear that all the time in these type of situations. But anyway, okay. Okay, here's what I want to talk about now, because this is interesting to me, because I understand that husbands kill their wives. And when a wife dies, the husband, the lover, the boyfriend, the man in her life is the first suspect. But this is a different type of murder. Nancy was tied up, beaten, raped. Things were stolen from the crime scene. To me, this does not look like something that was done by a husband. I mean, it could be, and it could be staged. But there was a point in time, and I would say it was the 1950s and before, where the police really did not believe in stranger murders. It was always people were murdered by somebody they knew. Now, we know that's not the case, but back then, 
they kind of almost refuse to believe that a stranger could murder someone, even though I think Perry might have been more of an acquaintance. Because, like I said, he was a co-worker of Daryl's. Okay, I think I might need to explain myself a little bit here, because I might be over-exaggerating the potentiality for a relationship between Perry and the Parker family. Because I think Perry was less of a co-worker of Daryl Parker's. Daryl was an actual employee of the park system, whereas Peary was a recently released convict who was, I think, on some type of either work release program or was just short-term employment for doing manual labor for the parks. So it's not like he was a regular parks employee where Daryl was. And when I say acquaintance, even that, I think, is an exaggeration. I do know that in the November before Nancy was murdered, that the Parker's home was broken into. Someone broke in through a window and their items of value were, I mean, they didn't have very many items of value. They were just a young married couple, but certain things that looked like the robber had been planning to take with him, they were all laid out on the bed. The police seemed to think from the crime scene of the break-in that the robber had been interrupted before he gathered those things up. He was just piling them up to grab them, and then the Parkers came home, and this guy fled. So after the home had been broken in, the head guy at the Parks Department realizes, he's thinking, the Parkers' home, which was on the grounds of the park, he felt like it was vulnerable there because there were no other homes around it. And here's this young couple living there. You know, he was worried about their safety. So he had a fence put around part of the Parker's home. And that was soon after this break-in in November. And one of the employees that was there to put in the posts for the fence system being put up was Wesley Peary. And it just tells you, like a little touching part about Nancy, she has these workers come over to her home. They're updating the outside, trying to make it safer for her. And this is what this sweet young lady does, is she makes homemade chocolate chip cookies and takes them out to the workers. And Peary was one of those workers. You know, it's general consensus now is that he had broken into their home that November day, and he came back in December, and that's when he killed Nancy. When he broke in in November, he very well may not have been familiar with Daryl or Nancy at all. He just saw it as a place where he could break in. And I think once he saw Nancy, you know, doling out those chocolate chip cookies, he realized that he wanted to come back later to hurt her. That's exactly what he did. But I just want to say, when I say acquaintance or co-worker, he's less a co-worker, more he was a part-time physical labor help, and not an acquaintance so much as a man that once saw Nancy and saw how kind she was, how sweet and how beautiful, and he wanted to hurt her. And he did. And this is what really should bother everybody. Wesley Perry, the actual killer, the man that confessed and knew confidential details about the murder, he was questioned in 1955 about Nancy Parker's death before Daryl Parker became a suspect. You see, like I said, Perry was a co-worker of Daryl's, and his vehicle was seen the morning of the murders parked near the crime scene. Perry's excuse was he often drove that way to take his mother to work. And the police accepted that. But what bothers me is, why did they accept that? He said he often drove his mother to work that way. But why would his vehicle be parked near the Parker residence if he's just driving his mother to work. But the police let that go. And Perry was dismissed as a suspect. And the police turned their attention towards Daryl. And why did they let Perry go? Even though that's a big inconsistency, even as declaration of why he was in the area, I drove my mother to work. Well, why are you parked there? You're not driving your mom to work. You're parked near their home. It was because Perry passed a lie detector test. And a polygraph tests are completely entwined and in bed with the read technique. 
And right here, this is where this case gets crazy. Because like I said, in 1988, after he died, this book he had been working on, the transcripts from it, had been released where he confessed to killing Nancy Parker and he knew intimate, secret details about the crime scene. But before 1988, Wesley Peary had been half-assed confessing to killing Nancy for decades. Because not long after Nancy was murdered, Peary had broken into some level of police officer's house. I can't recall if it was a sheriff or a deputy or who it was. He broke into some type of law enforcement officer's house and he stole a gun and he went on a local crime spree that was big in the news at the time and ended up with him in prison along with Daryl. Peary always said that he was innocent, but that he had evidence that Daryl wasn't guilty. And Peary played this disgusting game with Daryl's family and Daryl himself, where he would offer evidence. To, I'll offer you this to show that Daryl didn't do it. I know the secret evidence. I know where certain items from the crime scene are. And he just never came through. And I think this was a, a way for him to toy with somebody else. He seems like a manipulator. But also, I never read it anywhere declared. But I wonder seriously if Daryl's family didn't give him some financial benefits for communicating with them. I'm not saying that Daryl's family was paying for the information. I don't want to make it sound like he was getting a bribe. I'm suspicious that there might have been some level of financial benefit to Perry in keeping this going, but that's just me guessing. But Perry was all over the place, offering to take a lie detector's test if Daryl's family paid for his bail so he could get out while his case was being appealed. But then Perry changed his mind at the very last minute. Daryl's family was very loyal to him, and I think they were willing to go along with Perry because they knew he knew something, and if it took giving him a little bit of money to make him talk. But I don't think this is a situation where it was, this guy's going to confess for 50 bucks to a murder he didn't commit. It's not something like that. This guy was the real killer, and he was doing the shadiest, sneakiest, most disgusting thing ever by torturing this family and torturing an innocent man and just trying to get money out of them. That's how I feel about it. Now, there was a suitcase missing from the Parker home that was even monogrammed with Nancy's initials. And Perry said that he knew where that was. But each time when he directed the family and their investigators to the location where he said the suitcase was, they couldn't find it. And Perry toyed with an innocent man, dangling the chance of freedom in front of him, and then taking it away repeatedly. And not just any innocent man, but a man whose wife that this guy had raped and murdered. Let me just say, the more I hear about Wesley Perry, the less I like him. And here's where it all just chaps my ass. Perry was in prison for the murder of a Nebraska woman. He had convictions for breaking into homes and a rape conviction in Ohio. And I also think he had a rape conviction in Nebraska that was overturned. He had a criminal past and Daryl didn't. And the state knew all of this. Perry's vehicle was seen near the crime scene on the morning Nancy was murdered. And these self-incriminating statements by Perry that he knew where all this evidence was that would show that Daryl was innocent, these statements were part of Daryl's appeals. So the state knew about them, but the state fought against Daryl's release until they feared that they couldn't win. And that's what actually got Daryl released. Well, the Supreme Court bumped the case back down to the trial court to hold a hearing on whether or not Daryl's confession was voluntary. The state was no longer confident in their case. And if the court held that the confession was not voluntary and it was thrown out, there was no other evidence against Daryl. So there would be no case. And that's how Daryl gets released. 13, 14 years into a life sentence is because the state was no longer confident that they could keep him in jail, that the confession wouldn't survive this hearing. So an agreement was made and Daryl went back to prison, but only for a single symbolic day. And 
the Nebraska Board of Pardons shortened Darrell's sentence, and he was released on parole after serving that day. And this was an agreement made by the state and Darrell's defense team. Because as much as Darrell says he's innocent and he wants to prove his innocence, this man, more than that, wants to get out of jail. And because the state realized they don't have anything against Daryl other than that confession, which stands a good chance, or at least a chance of being tossed, they agreed to a situation where Daryl could be released without admitting that Daryl was innocent, which on the state's part is really shitty. The state had to have serious suspicions about Wesley Peary, but they ignored them, refusing to back down and stop pursuing a man at least should have suspected was innocent. And why did the police believe Peary over Daryl? Peary was a man with a criminal record who weeks after the murders went on a crime spree. He'd been convicted, I think, of two rapes. One of them had been reversed and a murder. Well, when questioned about Nancy's murder, Peary had passed a polygraph. And that's why all focus went on to Daryl. And Daryl Parker's case, you never hear it talked about. And it's so truly bizarre. He was a man convicted of killing his wife and what clearly the scene looked like was not a husband killing. I mean, she's, you know, bound and gagged and raped and beaten and, and strangled. That's either a stranger or an acquaintance. I mean, your husband gets mad and beats you to death with a microwave. That's what happens. Not this. And it took decades for this man to be exonerated, even though the only evidence against him was his confession. And that's what's important to know about confessions, is once you confess, it's the bell that can't be unrung. A jury loves a confession, and it doesn't matter if the fingerprints don't match. Now we have DNA, and that can help you, but it doesn't matter if the evidence doesn't match. And sometimes it doesn't even matter if the DNA doesn't match. All that matters is once a jury hears that you confessed, I don't think they hear much else. And that's basically the story of Daryl Parker's wrongful conviction. He was brought in strong-armed, lied to about the evidence, lied to about probably what the lie detector test was actually revealing. And he went into panic mode and started doing short-term thinking and thinking, how the hell do I get out of this room? He confessed. And that's not the way you get out of the room. You get out of the room by stopping the interrogation. But that's part of the read method is it puts people in a panic mode and a level of hopelessness that they lose sight of long-term thinking and they start doing immediate short-term thinking of how do I end this now and once someone starts thinking like that the big picture has gone and so is their freedom anyway the inventor of the read technique John Reed he also believed that the police could achieve the ability to recognize when someone is lying and that's part of the flaw built into the read technique this idea that the police can determine when the read technique should be applied because it's only supposed to be applied when you know this person's guilt but the problem is fundamentally before we even get to questioning a person with this type of conditions is the police do not have the ability to determine when somebody is lying also it's important to know this guy john reed super into polygraphs and we know that that's kind of like a load of shit so this is old-timey science okay and he's going off of some stuff that we know now is not the case but we're still using this technique years later and that's the idea he thought that a police officer would be able to recognize a liar by noticing the behavior of the suspect such as fidgeting or not looking into someone's eyes while talking but that's all bullshit and I know there are some YouTubers out there that are really going to disagree with me, but I think that fidgeting and the not looking into the eye thing are signs that someone is uncomfortable, not that they are lying. Most people would be uncomfortable while being interrogated by the police. So we're looking for behaviors and we're associating that with being a liar when really I think it's just somebody's uneasy, 
and nervous in a situation where somebody would be uneasy and nervous. But this idea that the police have some special ability to be human lie detectors is a load of bullshit. Okay, let's describe the read method a little bit. The basic elements of the read technique are familiar to all of us. It's the tiny claustrophobic room. The repeated accusations of guilt combined with assertions that the officers know that you are guilty. The outlining of evidence, some real, some made up. And the creation of pressure on the suspect that makes him think that confessing is his only option. It involves first establishing, like I said, that the evidence points to the suspect as the criminal. And keep in mind, the police can lie to suspects and claim that they have evidence or witnesses that don't exist because the goal with the read method is to create a feeling of hopelessness in the suspect, to make the suspect think that they are going to be convicted of a crime. The investigators create a storyline and they stick to it, fine-tuning it a little bit as they go if need be. This storyline may be factual and supported by the evidence, but it can also be based on lies. And that's part of the problem with the read technique. If you have to make a case where this person is guilty, and that's why we're using the read technique, because we have established that we know they are guilty. If you have to build the storyline out of lies, then we don't know that this person is guilty. See what I'm saying? The foundation for the read technique it's like building your house on sand. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work. And it's important to remember the police can lie. They can lie about other people's statements. They can lie about the evidence they have. They can lie about you failed a polygraph. They can lie about witness statements. They can lie about anything. They can lie about the facts of the crime scene, anything. They are free to lie. And this confuses the accused and makes him feel desperate, which is what the police want. The police want the suspect to feel hopeless, to feel that to confess is his only option. This is followed by the police outlining scenarios where someone was involved in the crime but played a lesser role, or that it was accidental in nature, trying to diminish the suspect's culpability. Here, the police try to frame the suspect as another victim. And this really seems to play with the mind of the suspects when the read technique is effective, because they're thinking, I'm a victim too. These people are saying, I'm a victim, so I'm not going to be punished. Or this is my way to get off with a light punishment where someone else that I'm saying was the ringleader or someone was more involved in the crime, I'm going to get off and perhaps just be able to walk away from this whole situation. But you're not going to be able to is the problem. Because in a lot of these cases, especially when it's multiple suspects, a lot of the times you might be in a state where it's felony murder. And felony murder is once you have that felony going, being committed like a robbery, well, yeah, we'll go with the robbery. Once you have that felony being committed and someone goes further than what the original game plan was, say we're going to go rob a bank, but nobody's supposed to get shot. But once you go in there to rob that bank and someone gets shot, everybody that went in there to rob that bank's on the hook for murder. It doesn't matter who shot. It doesn't matter if we all said we were never going to shoot anybody. You're all going down for felony murder. And um, that's just the way it is in states that have that. So that's something important to know is that even these people are thinking, I'm less involved in the crime you're still going to go down like you killed somebody. Now, at this point, when the police are trying to frame the suspect as a victim, they need to always seem sincere. So the suspect remains receptive to the technique. And if the suspect ever cries, they use that to infer guilt. Police also give two alternatives of how the crime occurred, including one where the crime seems less horrible and more acceptable somehow, or your suspect played a less main role in the crime, perhaps saying the other guy forced you to do these things and the person will agree to that. 
you just admitted that you did those things. Did he force you to rape her? Yeah, he made me do it. You told me I had to do it. You just admitted to committing a rape that you didn't commit. But you're thinking, oh, I'm saying he told me to do it. It wasn't my idea. It doesn't diminish your guilt or what you're going to be charged with. But these people were, once they're in that mind frame where they're thinking they've become a victim as much as that person that is the actual victim, they're warped at this point. Their mind's just, it's just a ball putty. So they're being manipulated. Now, once a confession is obtained, the investigators find evidence that supports the confession. And this is where I start to believe that the read technique, as much as I said, it started with good intentions. And it's based on the idea as you know, this person is guilty. You should never as an investigator, need to find evidence that supports the confession. The confession should be supporting evidence that has already been obtained. Once we start fitting evidence around the confession, what we're doing is most likely convicting an innocent person of a crime they didn't commit. If the confession is true, the evidence will already be there. Now, when the Reed method replaced beating the shit out of people to get a confession, the courts really seemed to accept that Whatever the methods the police were now using were acceptable, even though these methods were largely unknown. Like what I just explained to you about this, about making the suspect feel like a victim, giving them alternatives to the crime scene where they are less involved in the actual crime, making them feel hopeless, like the only way out is to confess. No one knew that stuff for decades. The courts just had to blindly agree that as long as you're not beating these people, it's okay. But why was this technique and its standards unknown for so long? It's because the police and the officers' associations did everything they could to keep the methods of interrogation private. They argued that to maintain the system, interrogations themselves must be private. And to a degree, we all accept that. But Bernard Weisberg of the ACLU accepted, like I said, that there is some level of privacy of interrogations that was important. But the police were using this need for privacy to cloak interrogations under a cloud of secrecy. And that's a difference. The idea of them private means you don't automatically give the person a lawyer when they come in for questioning. They want it. There is some value to having it just be the police and the person there. Although I personally think you should have a lawyer there as soon as you go in for questioning if you're a suspect. The idea is these people don't realize they're a suspect. But the idea of privacy versus secrecy is very important. You keep things a secret for a different reason than you keep things private. Now, Weisberg argued in support of audio recording of all interrogations. Privacy could be maintained. They could use a small hidden recording device, but the secrecy would be gone. But you wouldn't have to have more people in the room. But we would know for a fact what these suspects were saying, what they were actually confessing to, and more, not more importantly, but equally as important, we would know how the interrogation is going. Not only the technique that's being used, but we would be able to tell if the investigator is feeding responses to the suspect through how they're questioning them. The courts, defense attorneys, prosecutors, juries, and the public would know exactly what went on in that interrogation room. And honestly, the police officers and the officers' associations did not want this. They fought recording of interrogations 
for decades. Even though the technology existed to easily record interviews, you take out the gray area when you record things. But the police really didn't want that. And the courts accepted that these new psychological interrogation techniques didn't produce false confessions. And really, it wasn't just the courts. Pretty much everyone believed that the confession obtained under this new method of pressure was reliable. And as a country, we all seemed pretty happy that the police weren't just beating confessions out of suspects anymore. And that was until the rise of DNA testing. And that's when the legal system realized that innocent people were confessing to crimes that they didn't commit frequently. And this is straight out of a law review article from professors Richard Leo and Stephen Dreisen, who found 125 proven false confessions between the years of 1971 and 2002. 125 proven false confessions of people that were convicted, with 31% of them occurring between 1998 and 2003, and 55% occurring between 93 and 2003. We're just saying it's not something that's being diminished. And I think actually the rise of DNA might have increased it because these people think, I'll confess but the DNA will free me. Well, sometimes there isn't DNA. They don't know that. They might have lied and told you there was DNA. Now you're like, oh shit, I confess thinking, I didn't do this. The DNA test will show I didn't do it. Well, they don't have DNA. Because if they had DNA, at least now, they'd be able to figure out who the hell it was. Now, in 2003, they might, would be able to rule you out, rule you in. But it's not like they did genealogical DNA back then. And it's important to note the Reed method is still in use today. It is the most commonly used interrogation technique in the country. And it figures heavily in wrongful convictions. I was surprised when I learned that 25% of the convictions that had been overturned with DNA evidence were based on false confessions. These false confessions, they are just so much more common than we assume. So what's wrong with the Reed technique? Honestly, basically, it's just based on bad science. The idea that body language, you know, examples are arm crossing, looking away from the person you're talking to, touching your hair, shaking a cross leg, or being hunched over. Those are all examples. Those are all examples, according to supporters of the Reed technique, of anxiety. And that people, according to Reed, this is the whole basis of it, is people are anxious when they lie. This isn't long ago where I'm talking about the Reed technique emphasizing anxiety and signs of anxiety being related to lying. There is an article in the New Yorker in 2013 by Douglas Starr. I think it's titled The Interview. And he took a three-day Reed seminar. And the instructor, who was a VP in the Reed company, said that it is easier to tell if someone is lying in a recorded interrogation if there is no sound. And that just tells you how heavily they rely on body language. Also, it's not the truth, but it tells you how body language means so much to them. But body language isn't evidence. It isn't science, folks. But the read method, I accidentally, <laughs> the first time I went to record this, I accidentally said the rhythm method and had to re-record that part. The rhythm method has nothing to do with the police or interrogations. And if you ever hear that it does, you need to get yourself the hell out of where you are. But the read method is really based on reading body language and the idea that police could use these physical cues to tell if a suspect was lying and then decide that they are guilty. Because the read method, the basis of it is look for body language signs of anxiety because anxiety is related to lying. And once you see these body language signs of anxiety, you know that whoever you're talking to is lying and now they can become a suspect. But today, we realize that anxiety is a freestanding emotion that not all liars are anxious and not all anxious people are liars. The two are not necessarily intertwined. Can they be? 
Yes. A lot of people, when they lie, are anxious. That is true. But it doesn't mean that everybody that's anxious or nervous or whatever you want to call it is lying. Not only do we understand that being anxious and being a liar are two separate things, today we understand and are willing to recognize that being questioned by the police is an anxiety-inducing situation. So people are telling the truth. They might have anxiety just from the circumstances they find themselves in. And heck, there are people that are anxious pretty frequently, even when other people wouldn't be. I mean, it's incredibly common. And it doesn't mean that they are guilty or lying. It just means that they're anxious. And the opposite is equally true. There are psychopaths and narcissists that are being incredibly comfortable while being interrogated by the police, regardless of their guilt, regardless of whether or not they are lying. The idea that the police can tell when people are lying is crap. And that's what's wrong with the Reed method. It starts from a position where the police already know that the suspect is guilty. It starts from a position where the police already know that the suspect is guilty. Even if there is no evidence outside of body language that indicates guilt. And it moves on to defeating a weakened suspect's grasp on reality. And the truth with mental manipulation to the point where a suspect can no longer look at the bigger picture. The pressure put on them mentally has caused them to look at the short term. How do I get out of here? How do I make this end? How do I make this stop? Now, what am I saying now? And what will be the further implications for that for years to come? They're thinking, how do I end this? I end this by saying what they want me to say. And then I'll retract it and the evidence will support me. And But the evidence, even if it does support your innocence, once a jury hears that you confessed, I don't think they need to hear much more. It's the bell that can't be unrung. You confess and nobody wants to hear anything else. So even if you don't understand why an innocent person would confess, just understand that it does happen and way more than you would think. And when people say, I would never confess to something that I didn't do, yeah, maybe you wouldn't. But that doesn't mean that someone else wouldn't either. You very well could be one of those people that when confronted with the read technique, that just shuts the hell up, as you should. Because, like I've said before, the read technique, it has two outcomes. One's a confession, and the other is someone shuts the hell up and completely shuts down. And I would be a shutdown person. But there are people out there that would be a confession person. We are all different. Makes the world go around and shit like that. But it's important to realize, while these techniques might not work on you, they have been proven to work on other people. Because like I said, almost 30% of the people exonerated with DNA had given false confessions. And that is a real concern. 